0: Open your Bibles up to John chapter 6. Of course, it's good to be with you. John chapter 6 is broken up into uh, four basic sections. Uh, The first section is the first 15 verses of the chapter, and that deals with the feeding of the 5,000. Of course, there are several miracles that Jesus did but uh, the feeding of the 5,000 is is probably uh, not necessarily more important, but it's unique uh, in that all four Gospels record it, which is not true of all the miracles of Jesus. Uh, not all of them are told in all four Gospels. This one is. I mean, you have the feeding of the 4,000, uh, but that's not in all four Gospels uh, like the feeding of the 5,000. So it's a very important miracle. Verses 1 through 15 give all the details of that. Towards the end of those verses... Uh, Verses 14 and 15, after the miracle is over, you have the 5,000 crowd that's there. They're going to make Jesus king, uh, even if by force. Uh, And Jesus retreats from them, and he goes up the side of this mountain, even leaving the disciples there by himself, and he remains there. By the time you come into verse 16, you see the evenings come, and Jesus hasn't come back down. And so, in this gospel at least, the disciples uh, get into a boat, and they leave and head to Capernaum. Uh, which probably suggests that there was some understanding that that's where they were going to go next and so they knew that Jesus would somehow meet them there or perhaps there's confusion uh, with that. But hey, all we know is they got into a boat and went out on the lake. Verses 16 through 21 make up the second section and cover a couple different things. Number one, the physical details of how Jesus and the disciples got got from one location in the chapter to another physical location. The disciples took the boat, Jesus takes the shortcut and trods across the water. Probably would have done that myself. So verses 16 through 21, well, I would have swam. Probably should add that in real quick. Haven't walked on water. Verses 16 through 21 is that second section. The third section is verses 22 down through verse 59, which is really important because this section really covers the guts of what the whole feeding of the 5,000 was about, which, by the way, the 5,000 crowd missed. I mean, they were there, they partook of it, they heard what he said, but they really missed the significance of this. So this whole conversation, uh, and part of that we're going to look at this evening, is about the details of, hey, what was so significant about the feeding of the 5,000? And that's verse 25, I'm sorry, verses 22 down through verse 59. Verses 60 down through the end of the chapter is the address to the disciples themselves, and of course many of them turn back, and you have 12 that are left, and Jesus addresses them. So it's really a phenomenal tra- uh, chapter. To give you a basic, brief description of where we're going to be tonight, we're going to be looking at verses 27. No, not verses, just we're going to look at verse 27. What's taken place is the Je- uh, Jesus has been up on the mountain. The, uh, the crowd sees him retreat to the mountain. They know that the disciples were left there. And uh, evening comes, the disciples take off, they head out, and eventually uh, the crowd... Uh, stays there all night long, and, and, and they do not see that Jesus has come down the mountain or walks across the water to the disciples, so they're kind of left there. So you have some boats uh, some boats that show up from Tiberius, probably scholars saying hearing of the miracle. I mean, think about the, the massive miracle that was and the feeding of all the crowd. And so you have people coming from Tiberius. I mean, who wouldn't? It's free lunch. And so they come over to see Jesus. And when they realize that Jesus is not there, they take off and look for him. So verse 25, you enter into how they come into Capernaum. They find Jesus, and actually, Jesus is teaching in a synagogue. So they come and they track him down to a synagogue, and they ask him a a phenomenal question. Rabbi, when did you get here? When did you get here? And so uh, Jesus just addresses them. And what you have is, and this is really important, Jesus is familiar with this group. We've been faced. With groups like this. One of the things we're finding, and of course, obviously not your church, but one of the things we've been finding in, in, in some of the churches uh, today is there's just an apathetic deadness to the church. I mean, there's no life, there's no excitement. It's, it's literally the church kind of seeps into this business type mentality. Uh, we do the same thing every Wednesday night, we do the same thing every Sunday night, we do the same thing every Sunday morning. It's the same old stuff, the same old messages, the same old songs. I mean, it's just... And the churches, and the churches die. They dwindle. They dwindle. And, of course, they'll end up selling them some Pentecostal church, or the building that is. So you have this apathetic spirit, really, that's pervading the church, and, and, and there's a problem with it. And literally the reason for that is traced back to the same kind of problem that you have here. Uh, Jesus is familiar with this crowd. And how he's familiar with them, the 5,000 crowd, is this is the Galilean group. Now if you do any research on Jesus' ministry, you're going to note that the majority of his ministry took place in Galilee, which was the north. He's away from the big city, which is Jerusalem. He's up in the north in Galilee, the country area. You know, out in the the boondocks of the country, they sing country-western music up there. Kind of like, that's where they are. Okay, Jesus spent most of his ministry there. And if you tread back through, the, uh, through his gospel, you're going to note, for instance, um, chapter 1 is, the, is John the Baptist and the, and the pr- preparation of his, uh, uh, of his ministry for Jesus. Uh, and, and of course Jesus comes on the scene when John says, Behold the Lamb of God. Some of John's disciples are then transferred over to Jesus and become his disciples. And so the rest of it, of chapter 1, beginning at verse 35 to the end of the chapter, is the choosing of the disciples. Now, chapter 2, which is the first miracle, guess where it takes place? Galilee. Okay? Galilee. So the 5,000 crowd that we're having here, they would have at least heard of, if not seen personally, this miracle. It's up in their area. It's where he turns water into wine. Now, that's chapter 2, the beginning of the chapter. When you move into the rest of chapter 2, it's the uh, first Passover, okay, and uh, Jesus comes down to Jerusalem to celebrate that, verses 12 through verses 16, uh, they tell us the details of how Jesus goes into the temple, and he's turning over tables, he's gathering the coins, the money chambers, uh, chambers money changers, and he's fashioned this whip out of cords and he's cracking over here and he's slashing over there and he's doing all this, all this aggressive stuff and, of course, zeal is pumping through him. And you have a particular group that witnesses this in that, in that, in that scene. Verses 23, 24, and 25 talk about that group. And that group is, is more than likely the group that's from uh, Galilee. Now, it doesn't say that in those verses, But there's a typical way, here's this, there's a typical way that Jesus responds to the Galileans. There's a typical way. Every time he's confronted with them, he talks about them the same way. And so we're suspecting that, hey, verses 23, 24, and 25, these individuals are probably the group that's come from Galilee. Listen to how uh, John describes it. Verse 23 of chapter 2. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. In other words, you have a bunch of, group of, a, a bunch of people, a group of people that's come. They've seen all the signs that he's doing. And by the way, signs there is plural. So that tells us that during that celebration time, there were several very important things that took place, several prophecies fulfilled, several signs that Jesus was the one. They see these things, and they believe in his name. In other words, they say, hey, we believe you're the, the king to come. We believe who you say you are. Okay, so that's a strong statement. But listen to how Jesus responds to them. Verse 24. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. And that word entrust is the exact same Greek word as their belief. So the way that they believe in him is the same word that he will not entrust himself to them. So they say, hey, we believe you're the king. We believe you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, I don't want to be your king. I don't want to be your Messiah. That's really odd language for me. In fact, when we first began to study this back in, well, chapter 2 was several years ago. I was pretty amazed at that because here I thought Jesus came to be king. He came to be Messiah and you have a whole group of people that believe in him and yet he doesn't want to be their king. But the truth of the matter is is there's a flaw in this group and the kind of king that they want him to be is not the kind of king that he came to be. Really important. Now you see that here in chapter 2 but chapter uh, 3 is him leaving Jerusalem after a talk with Nicodemus. And he's, he journeys out in the Judean countryside, still headed up towards Galilee. And there's some John the Baptist uh, and his disciples' issues that get uh, get worked out. Chapter 4, is he's still on his way to Galilee, he passes through Samaria and has a pit stop ministry there in Samaria. By uh, the time you come to chapter 4, verse 43, he's entering into Galilee. And guess what group he runs into again? Again, this 5,000 crowd. Listen to how he says it in verse 43, how John writes about it. After the two days, he left for Galilee... Now, verse 44 in my translation, I don't know how it is in yours, but in my translation it's in parentheses, which means it's not a quote, it's just kind of, it's a statement that's inserted there by John to say, hey, this is something that Jesus said, and it's really important as a reader that you know this. Verse 44 says, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And what that means is Jesus says before he ever got to Galilee, sometime when he left Samaria before he got to Galilee, Jesus says, I'm telling you, before we ever get there, they're not going to honor me. I'm telling you. And the word honor there is not glory or respect word. The Greek word there is kameen, which means value. They don't value him. They don't don't know what he's worth. They don't get who he really is. That's that group. And Jesus tells them that before he ever gets there. And he comes into town... And again, he's proved rightly in light of what takes place, and that's all told to us at the end of chapter 4. Chapter 5, Jesus goes back down to Jerusalem for another miracle. Chapter 6, he's back up into uh, uh, Galilee again, and it's it's in that area where he does the feeding of the 5,000. And again, now now get this, verses 14 and 15, (laughs) it's this repetition, verses 14 and 15, uh, he does this miracle, and they want to make him king. Listen to how it goes. Verses 14 and 15. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet, which is a messianic title. Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, and they would have to make him king by force if he didn't want to be their king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now that is four times that he's run into this crowd. Four times he's run into this group. And he doesn't want anything to do with them. Every time he encounters them, every time he embraces them, every time that he's amongst them and they want to identify uh, themselves with him, they want to have him as their king, Jesus has has reluctance. Now, throughout the whole of chapters 1 through 5 and now into 6, I've always wondered, well, I have speculation as to why that's true. I mean, I could probably guess over looking at the passages why Jesus wouldn't want to be linked with him, but he's never come out and said anything until now. In chapter 6, he finally, in our passage, he finally addresses the group. And you would say, what's their problem? First off, verse 25 and 26. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw a miraculous sign, but, here's the reason, you're looking for me because you saw a sign that I'm the Messiah. And basically, that I'm the one who I've been, uh, who, I'm the one who I've been saying that I am on the on the fulfillment of what God has established in the kingdom. I'm the Messiah. You're not seeking me because you saw a sign. Here's what they're seeking. He says, but you you ate the loaves and you had your fill. That's why you're seeking me. You ate the loaves and you had your fill. Now, we did a word study, uh, and this is another study, but I'll just recap it. The whole statement of you ate the loaves and you had your fill—that's not like you ate the loaves and now you're full. There's a couple of different Greek words for fill that are used in the New Testament. Um, one Greek word, which literally means like to fill a container. If I had a bucket and I were to fill it from the bottom to the top of water, there would be a Greek word for that. It's filled up. Can't put anything. In, uh, putting, uh, you can't put anything else in. That word is used back in chapter six at the feeding of the five thousand and verse twelve. When they, had, when they had all had enough to eat, that's that word. Had enough to eat, that's the word filled. In other words, they'd eaten and eaten and eaten until they were filled up. They opened their mouth, the fish would pop out. Okay. <laughs> They're full. Okay? They can, you can't fit any more in their body. They are full. But when you come down, get this, when you come down into the passage of what Jesus just said, hey, the reason you're looking for me is because you ate the loaves and you had your fill, the Greek word doesn't describe being filled up. The Greek word literally describes a state of satisfaction. Jesus said, the reason you're looking for me is you're satisfied with the food. See, they weren't after him. They were satisfied for what he could give them. Folks, there's a and teens, You've got to get a hold of this. See, I seek Jesus for Jesus. I don't seek Jesus for what he can give me. See, this group wasn't seeking him for him. They were seeking him for what he could give them. And when, he got, when they got the food, oh, don't need you anymore. Oh, don't, I mean, don't leave very far because we're going to be hungry in about five or six hours. But hey, anyway, we're satisfied with the food. They're content with the food. See, this group was never into him. Uh, they're into what he could do for them. That's this group. And you understand, they picked this up from the leaders of Israel. Uh, which we're going to deal with here just in a bit. But this is, this, is a, this is a spiritual problem in their life. It's the first time that Jesus has addressed it. He said, the reason you're looking for me is not because of me, but because of the food. You're satisfied with the food. Now, our passage goes a step further, and Jesus deals in verse 27 with basically three things. And they're just laid right out for you, and we'll walk right through them. It's really easy. The first one he's going to deal with is the, they're seeking. Okay? They are seeking Jesus. And what does that mean? They're seeking. The uh, the second thing is is that they're seeking, but they're seeking food. And what kind of food are they seeking? And the third thing that we're going to deal with in the passage that Jesus actually highlights is there's this approval. Okay, there's this approval that he's talking about. So we're talking about seeking what they're seeking, and there's this approval that's attached uh, to this whole passage. Okay, the approved food. Number one, the seeking. Uh, When I was in college, um, of course, uh, took theology class and that kind of stuff. Um, We had this professor, and uh, he was really good with the Old Testament. And we did a study of Genesis, uh, what was that passage? It was Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. The first uh, part of Genesis is God created this, he created that, he created this, he created that, he created this, and you go down through the list. And, of course, he gets to man. God created man. In his own image. He said, hey, I got an idea. Let's make man. And let's make him in our own image. And, uh, of course, the rest of the godhead said, wow, great idea. I thought of that, too. Let's do it. So they make man in his own image. Well, when you go down in the next chapter, he begins to talk about the details of the creation of man, which is really neat. Now, he says that he created man out of the dust of the earth, okay, grabs dirt, creates a man out of it, and then he breathed into his, and the literal language there is space but it's, we, we translate it nostrils. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became, in Greek, says the man became a living psuche. That's it, psuche. It's like a at the beginning. It's kind of fun to say. He became a living psuche. But in the Greek, that word is nephesh. Okay? In the Greek, that word is nephesh, which has to do with soul. He became a living being. But one of the things that our professor began to talk to us about is that language, now get this, that word "nephesh" is tied to, a meaning of it, it's tied to this idea of a throat or thirst. So that when man was created, he became a living thirst. He became a living throat. If you've ever seen me, you'd understand what I'm talking about. He became a living throat. He became a living thirst. Which means man was born hungry. And that's spiritual language, you understand. Man was born hungry. Man was born thirsty. Which tells us everyone seeks. Everyone was created to seek. Everyone was created to hunger. Now, it's interesting, when we're talking about Christianity, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is what you hunger for. Now, you need to understand, this is where you wake up pay attention. When we're talking about seeking, when we're talking about hungering, We're not talking about activity stuff. Oh, yeah, I'm seeking. How do I know? I'm at church. No. See, seeking, hungering is beyond activities. And you could show up to church on Sunday and never be seeking. You could show up to church on Sunday and not be hungering. And you understand, and this is huge for this group, because this group is doing all kinds of activities. But Jesus is absolutely addressing an issue in their life. They're not seeking. There's a problem with them. What is it? They're not hungry, man. They're not after him. They're not, it's an internal drive type of thing. I've looked for illustrations on how to talk about this, and I have to go back into my own life. Um, you ever met anybody that just was really into football? See, seeking is... The way you would describe seeking, and this should make sense, the way you would describe seeking is the want-to versus the have-to. See, why do you play football? Well, i got to do it. Oh, man, it's just something on the inside. I, yeah, I, just, I love it, man. I think about it during the day. I, uh, I, I met some guy out in Oregon a while back, and uh, this was a part of another message we've, we've given. But this guy, was, he was into football, and he was like, he played this fantasy football stuff. I don't know if you ever heard of that. He was like, and his, everybody has groups and leagues. His group was like 80 people which I guess is bigger than the normal fantasy football league. But he was in the top four or five, if not number one, um, I mean, every, every week. And they do that thing weekly, I guess, is what he would do. Here's what, if you're familiar with fantasy football, what he would do is um, you watch all the games. He would have TiVo. You watch all the games every week. You record them. And you keep stats. And he had a notebook. You keep stats on how every player, okay, on, and every position on every team, how they did. And yards, I'm not just like, did they do good? Yeah, they didn't do bad. No, no, how many yards they had, how many passes. There's websites you can go for this kind of thing. And he charted all of that all week. Now, at the end of the week, based off that charting, he projected, based off of that week and the weeks prior, how he would do the next week. And then he would pick the best possible team of every position, of every team, and build his fantasy football team. And he was, he was the best. He was consumed with that. And I asked him, I said, how? I said, that's like a second job, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, but see, that was a want-to in him. I mean, that was a burn inside of his bones type of thing. Uh, I'm into online gaming to, to some extent. I like uh, playing online games. Um, it's kind of like a risk type of game. online gaming. And there are people that I play against that are absolutely, that's their god. I mean, they're driven by that thing. Uh, I made a friend with a guy who's in Canada because you play people all over the world. This guy's got $18,000 in debt. All the credit card debt from playing this stuff. I mean, he's into that. Now, you look at those guys, and I mean, they stay up sometimes for 36 hours and play and get two hours sleep, and they think about it and breathe about it. Now, that's what you would describe hunger. Now, what's interesting is you go inside church one time sometimes and you meet people, and they say, oh, yeah, I'm speaking, but they can't stay awake in church. That's not only pathetic, but that's a spiritual problem. of course, not you guys. But we we go to church after church after church after church, and people say that they're hungry and they're seeking in there. If that's seeking, I don't want it. If that's not seeking the way that it's described here, are you with me? I mean, that's really important. That's really important. See, to say that I'm after Him, to say that I'm seeking, to say that I'm running after Jesus, I mean, that's not hard to pick illustrations for that kind of stuff. It's what drives you. It's the want to versus the have to. And what I found, and we get this with our interns, I can't instill in my interns the want to. I'm finding you either have it or you don't. See, I can beat them over the head and make them come to church every Sunday, and I can do that to my son. I can control him, I can manipulate him, I can bribe him, I can do anything. But see, Jesus Christ is the only thing that can get the want to in that guy. And so unless they start listening and responding to Jesus, they'll never want to. Which tells you, whoever's not seeking, they're not wanting Jesus. Which means they'll eventually go to hell in spite of their church attendance. Everybody shake their head. In spite of their ties, they will not make it to heaven. Because what we're talking about in terms of Christianity is beyond activities. it's a seeking thing. It's a hungering thing. It's a passion thing. It's a, it's a hymn kind of thing. This group is lacking in that. And Jesus says, listen, I'm addressing you on your seeking. And how do you know that? Because you look in the passage, and Jesus... Now, what's interesting is, get this, they are seeking. They're just not seeking Him. They are motivated. It's just not about Him. I mean, they're, 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 they're driven. It's just not about Him. Because we're all driven. Jesus says, verse 27, do not work... For food. Now that word work is a seeking type of word. Uh, in fact, when you go and you look at this word, and like if you just grab a di- uh, Greek dictionary, it's the word um, ergazomai. Get a t-shirt that says it on there. It's kind of cool. Ergazomai. Okay. But it's the Greek word ergazomai, and it literally means to labor in a field. <laughs> okay? First aspect. It means to labor in a field. I labored in a field earlier this week. Kind of like a field. It was my grandma's yard. And... Uh, while I was laboring mowing the yard, which was a piece of cake, I thought back when I was in the Marine Corps. <laughs> we was in the Marine Corps. they would, uh, they would only We was in an area, and you, would, you wouldn't think the grass would grow much in California, but it did. And we would only, we'd only cut it like once a month. Well, by that time, no lawnmower on the whole world could cut the thing, you know. I mean, so they gave you these. Uh, Earl, you might remember these back in your day. Uh, they had this long stick with this, like, thing on it, and once, and what's it called? Oh, so you had one, too, as a girl. Okay, so uh, you go through, and you just, and that, I mean, you talk, and we do that eight hours a day, for two or three days, once a month. And, uh, I mean, just wore you out. I mean, absolutely wore you out, because you're going thick, and then we had rattlesnakes to mess with and that kind of stuff, and you couldn't kill them because it was preserved, so you had to throw them around, and it was just, I mean, it was just, so you were just going at this, and you—I mean—it just absolutely wore you out. That's the idea of that word. Now, now we're not talking about activity. How am I thinking? Oh, because I mow the church lawn. <laughs> no, no, we're not, it's not thinking. We're not talking about activity. Now, get this. We're talking about the in. Get this. This is phenomenal. We're talking about the internal drive of an individual that literally produces work. I mean, they're, they, they're toil after this thing. They're into this thing. It's sweat off your brow kind of thing. In fact, this word here is used in the Gospel of John. It is, it is singled out to use to describe the miracles of Jesus and the work Jesus does in the Father. This is the kind of work. By the way, do you know that Jesus does not use this word for any other thing that he does? Jesus has all kinds of activities is what I'm saying. Uh, does Jesus uh, go to uh, big gatherings of people where there's celebrations? Yes, he does. Does he travel long distance? Absolutely. Uh, does he strive and toil and labor? Absolutely. But none of those are used with this word. When you're talking about the, ugh, Jesus only uses that word, that kind of thing, on one thing, and it has to do with kingdom kind of stuff. Okay. The drive inside of Jesus uh, it, it is channeled in working. For instance, you know, people may see me play basketball, and I work at that. People may see me on my online gaming, and I work at that. But there's a whole nother level of work that we're talking about in terms of kingdom stuff. You think I get excited about basketball? Well, you haven't seen me about him. Do you, do you think I really work at some of my, my activities in my life, some of my you know, football, basketball, what have you? Hey, you should see how I work for the kingdom. And it's beyond activities, it's an inside drive that produces the working. Let me give you an example of this. We're in chapter 6, if you go back one chapter. If you go back one chapter, what you find is, is, uh, verses uh, 1 through 15 is what Jesus does. You remember it? Jesus comes into the temple, and again, we're talking about inside drive things. He sees through the eyes of the Father. What the Father is feeling, Jesus is feeling. What, what the Father is seeing, Jesus is seeing. He's living in that perspective. It's not a manufactured thing. He's not just doing stuff. I mean, he's literally living in the presence and the flow of the Father. He comes in the temple. He sees right outside the temple walls this man who's been uh, a cripple for some large majority of his life, probably 38, 40 years of his life he's been a cripple. Jesus comes up and speaks healing into his life. Now, get this. The lingers of Israel ask him, Why did you do that? Why did you do that? And listen to what Jesus says in verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, you know, healing people, they began to persecute him. So Jesus said, listen, my Father is at his work. That's that word. To this very day, and I too am working. Same word. That's the word. It's associated with the passion and hunger and the scenes of the perspective of the Father, the drive that that he's involved in ministry stuff. That's that work. So you have the same word that's used to describe what Jesus is in the kingdom is used to describe what they are in into other things. Okay? I mean, they're working, they're seeking, they're driven, they're they're putting their hands to stuff. But Jesus is putting his hands to stuff over here, and they're putting to their hands stuff over here. Now, you would ask, what are they putting their hands to? Well, the whole passage is centered around this food thing. In fact, Jesus says in verse 27 of our passage, chapter 6, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures through eternal life. Okay, they are working they're working for food, but see, it's not the right food. Um, Jesus is getting at, and this, this is pretty easy to understand, Jesus is getting at a spiritual issue in the life of the people. Um, oftentimes, uh, what will happen is, and we know this, Jesus will use a physical circumstance to get at a spiritual problem. Um, I had a spiritual problem in my life when I became a Christian back in 1995. It manifested itself in smoking. Smoking was not my problem. Smoking was not what was going to send me to hell. okay Smoking was not what was going to send me to hell. Smoking was the result. it was the manifestation of a spiritual problem. Okay, you get a fever. The fever's not the problem. It's what's causing the fever that's the problem. And you can take a leave and the fever's gone. you're healed, right? No, because in six hours you're going to have a fever again. And I don't know if the lead fixes the fever. My wife's in charge of the medical stuff. Anyway, but see, you can take care of the symptom and not get at the problem. Okay, So I had a problem in my life, and cigarettes was the result. It was the manifestation of that. Jesus didn't want to deal just with the smoking. In fact, I'm under the impression that he's really not. It's like, hey, yeah, don't smoke, man. I mean, yeah, you're going to get lung cancer. Your breath's going to stink and your teeth are going to fall out and you're going to, have, you're going to sound like Bob Dylan at 27. I mean, you know, raspy... I mean, yeah, don't smoke. But smoking wasn't the huge issue. What the issue was is that Jeremiah was leaning on something other than Jesus. Every time I was stressed, every time I was pressured, every time I was under the gun, every time I was under the heat of things, what, I, what would I do in frustration? I'd reach for a cigarette. And Jesus says, I don't want you reaching for anything but me. Now, what I've found in my life is... is You know, church people, we're too holy to have cigarettes, so we substitute that with? Okay, I'll help you. Coffee. Now, is coffee bad? No, coffee's not bad. Listen to me. Coffee's not bad. I had a cup this morning. Coffee's not bad. But it can be bad. It can be bad. I have met people that said, hey, you don't want to talk to me before I've had my first pot of coffee. Well, have a cigarette too, man, then it may be better for you. <laughs> Seriously. Maybe I should use one that's a little bit easier. You know that food can be that? In fact, a lot of psychologists say that people, especially in our day in society, people use food as a drug. They get depressed, guess what they do? Food. So, you now again, oh, what's, what's the problem? Then food. No, food ain't the problem. Never eat again. That'll cure your problem. <laughs> No, food ain't the problem. What's the problem? Spiritual issue in your life. Don't reach for food. Don't reach for coffee. Don't reach for cigarettes. Hey, coffee's fine. Food's fine. We understand that. That's not the real issue. The issue is, is instead of reaching for those things, get into the real deal. Now, Jesus is addressing this. And he says, don't work for food. Now, does he say, don't ever eat again? No. No, that's not what he's saying. But they have a misplaced seeking. They have a misplaced working. In fact, he says, there's two types of food in the, in the, in the passage. Okay? There's the food that spoils, and then there's the food that endures. The food that spoils, the Greek word for spoils, it literally means to tear apart, to break down. It's the food that does not last. Okay, uh, I bought a cheeseburger from McDonald's. I come home and think, well, I don't really want a cheeseburger. I'll set it out in the sun and I'll eat it next week. Yeah. I'll eat it next week. Now, that, that dude's going to break down, okay? And I'm not going to want to eat that thing in a week. Why? Because it doesn't remain. It doesn't last. It spoils. That's the food. They are working. What they're giving themselves to, what they're, what, they're, what they're after, what they're working for, the inside drive of their life that propels them is the food that spoils. It's the food that doesn't last. Now, now my first response was to say, oh, the food is bad. no. The food isn't bad, it's their seeking and its place in their life that makes it bad makes it bad. Does that make sense? See, I'm finding you guys and I don't know how you feel about this, but I'm finding that sin isn't always bad stuff. See, we want to say, oh, oh, you know, magazines. These kind of magazines are sin, you know, and uh, smoking is sin. And we define Christianity in terms of, well, what's good? Oh, good things. I come to church on Sunday. I never get a divorce. I wear the right clothes. I don't drink, smoke, or chew. I, well, yeah, but see, sin is not the is, sin is not the absence of bad things in our life. Because football can become a bad thing when it becomes your god. Food can become a bad thing when it becomes your god. Now, the food that they're seeking, the feeding, the bread and fish, is that bad? No, it's not bad. Jesus gave it to them. Then why is he saying don't work for it? Because they're, they're, it's a misplaced focus. They're hungering, they're bashing, they're working, they're toiling. Their whole life is bent on that. So anything that we put our eyes to can become evil. It can become bad. Do you realize that ministry can become an idol? That I can be more into ministry than into Jesus? Ephesus? The Church of Ephesus chapter two, Jesus says, Hey, I see all the things you're doing, that you've forsaken your first love, do the things you did at first. They're all into ministry, but they're not into him. See, this group is after things that don't last. And so at first we started to study this passage. I thought, oh, they're after the food that spoils. Well, what's the food that spoils? I'll say I'll find the food that spoils and I'll stay away from it. Well, it's not a thing. It's not like a list of stuff. It's anything that doesn't remain. Now, you would say, or anything that spoils, you would say, okay, well, what kind of food should I be after? Oh, great question, because it's in the passage. Jesus says, don't work for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Now, you would say, what, what's the food that endures to eternal life? Well, the food that endures to eternal life is, uh, and he goes on, he says, which the Son of Man will give you. And by the way, when you go a few verses down, you're going to find that guess what the food that endures to eternal life is? Jesus. He says, I'm going to give you myself. So the only thing we're seeking, get a hold of this, the only thing we're, see, the only room in our lives for that kind of hunger and passion, there's only room for one thing, and it's Him. See, we're to seek after, we're to hunger after the food that endures. And it's interesting, uh, endures eternal life. The word life there, there's two types of life that are mentioned in the Bible. There's zoe and bios. Uh, You're probably familiar with bios. It's where we get our word. Biology. She's heard all my sermons. Uh, It's from the Greek word, uh, biology is from the Greek word bios. It's physical life. When he says the food that endures, he doesn't say the food that endures to bios, the food that endures to physically, hey, you eat this food, you'll never die, you'll never grow old. (laughs) That's fountain of youth type of stuff. This word is zoe, which has to do with spiritual life. So he's talking about, get this, he's talking about spiritual food. Talking about spiritual food. And it's interesting, when he talks about spiritual food, he doesn't mention church attendance. He doesn't mention clothing. He doesn't mention choir, money. He doesn't mention anything that the leaders of Israel mention. Nothing. He doesn't mention any of that kind of stuff. All he mentions is inside, internal passion, hungering, I put my, I'm driven to put my hands to working for Him. It's clawing after it's laboring, it's sweating, it's, it's running after Him. It's getting into the food that endures to eternal life. There's a, literally, the result of my hunger and passion after Jesus is the spiritual content life of my life. It's spiritual food that He's talking about in the passage. Now, He talks about this, this seal uh, there's a seal of approval. Here's what he said, verse 27. It's a command, do not work for the food that's spoiled. Hey, don't work for the stuff that does not remain. It's not that that stuff is bad, but we don't live for it. See, it's not that uh, my online gaming is bad. It's not bad. In fact, there's Christian online gaming that I play. So it's not bad, but I can't run after that like I run after him. Okay? It's not that football's bad, because football's not bad but if you run after football in the way that you should be running after Jesus, it becomes bad. Okay, So it's not that the food's bad. It's just that that stuff is worldly. It's that stuff that's here today, gone tomorrow. It's not bad. In fact, some of that's necessary. It's got to be in your life. But hey, it, it's not the, you're not to be after that like you're to be after him. Okay, And the word that he uses to describe the working after him is is the word working. It's ergazomai, and it's an internal drive kind of word. Uh, This is always, and we're pretty much adults here tonight. Uh, How do you talk about this? I don't have to make myself be hungry for food. It's not something you have to discipline yourself for. You know what I'm saying? Just go without eating for 12 hours, and guess what your stomach's going to do? Wouldn't it be sad if you never had that spiritually? I mean, seriously. If you come to church week after week after week after week after week, seems I just... It's called deadness, man. It's lethargy. It's just... Ugh. It's lukewarmness. It makes him sick. It's, it's not having that internal hunger. You pick certain bodily drives that you have, you know? The stuff that our hormones is attached to. See, you don't have to make yourself... <laughs> I should stop this. You don't have to... I don't have to... Oh, i got to go home and hold hands with my wife. What are you talking about? <laughs> I always want to hold her hand? You're too old for that. I understand. Okay. It, 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 you don't have to discipline yourself into that. It's natural hungers. That's, that's the word working here. It, it, that's what he, it, it, it's a direct result of the internal hunger I put my hands to kind of stuff. And, of course, what are we putting our hands to? That's we're driven behind. To get our hands, it's into Him. We're working for Him. Now, He says at the end of this, Do not work for food that it spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Then He says this, On Him, this is the On Him, God the Father has placed His seal of approval. Now, there are several different seals. I've got a few of them here. Listen. There were several uh, seals that were used uh, in Jesus' day and culture. Okay, uh, the Greek word "seal" was used in several different ways. One way it was used was uh, had to do with like seal up or secure something. And where that word is used, and we looked at the passage this morning, was in Matthew chapter 27, where they sealed the tomb. So they went and made the tomb secure. That's our word. They went to, uh, to the tomb. They went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal. On the stone and posting the guard, so actually it wasn't secure. It's sealed. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and and posting a guard. So in other words, it's it's they are sealing that. It's uh, it's secure. Hey, it's been closed. No one's been inside. That's how that word is used uh, in the New Testament. Another way it's used is a sign of authentication or ownership. Okay, it's authenticating. Or it's a sign of... You put a seal on it and you have ownership. In our day and time, we have that with branding. I thought about that with our dogs. I got chihuahuas. Just a sign of authenticity. I could brand that little dude. man. That's there on the side of the chihuahua. Jeremiah. Where it's used is in Revelation chapter 7. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Sign of ownership, authenticity. Now, there's another way that uh, is used, in, 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 in it's kind of a vague way. It's a technical term in their culture uh, in, in, in terms of commercial use, business use. Uh, but the fourth way that it's used in our New Testament is it has the idea of confirmation. And it's actually used in, our, uh, in just a couple chapters prior um, when uh, well, John the Baptist actually quotes this. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. Okay, it, it, it's hey, God has said this, and it, and, and those who have accepted it have certified; they've they, they've proven that hey, it's true that God is faithful. Okay, God is true. That's the idea of our word here, and so the idea is is one of confirmation or a testing of truth. So they say, uh, John writes at the end of our passage, on him, God the Father has placed His seal of office. Uh, uh, how would you say that? Authentication? I I shouldn't use words that I can't spell. It's a seal of uh, of attestation, uh, a confirmation. Uh, There's one thing, we've heard of the term uh, FDA approved. Jesus is God the Father approved in terms of food. There's one food, there's one food that God the Father approves of, and that's His Son. There's one thing that He approves of our hunger. If you want to know, I believe this, um, I believe on the last day that we are not going to be judged on church attendance. I think we're going to be shocked. I, I don't think we're going to be judged on church attendance. I don't think we're going to be judged on uh, uh, um, terms of workings and, and how many kids we went out and drove into church on. I don't think we're going to be judged on that kind of stuff. In fact, Jesus says, many on that day are going to say, Lord, Lord, I healed. I prophesied. I preached. And Jesus is going to be saying, you missed the whole vote because what we're going to be judged on is inside hunger. Motivation, drive, passion—that kind of stuff. See, there's one. Get this. There's one approved food that we're to strive for. What's that hymn? Which tells you that he is after one thing. He's after one thing. There's a passage, and I won't go back and read it. But it's the story of Mary and Martha. You know that story? There's a story of Mary and Martha. Jesus comes to the house, and what's Martha doing? She's running around, she's baking this, she's after that, she's fixing this, she's running this, she's doing that. She's everywhere, working, 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 working. You've got to make sure the church stuff is done. And you're counting the offering, and misses half the service, but she does it anyway. And she's counting the offering, and, and she does the special. She plays the piano and the organ at the same time. And she, uh, she's running around, and she's doing all of this stuff. Now Mary comes in, and she plops flat right in front of Jesus, and just... Whoa. And what does Martha do? She runs up to Mary, and says, and what does Jesus say? Martha, take a hike. Go count the offering. Mary has chosen one thing, and that's, that, that's it. One thing is required. There's one, one deal that we're, we're after, and that's Him. And everything in our life is going to spill out of that one thing. Spiritual food. Spiritual hunger. So how does that apply to my life? I've, walk, I've been to places before, and it's not, you know, I mean, I'm probably wrong most of the time, but I've been to places before, and you walk around and you think, these people are starving to death. I mean, really. They are absolutely starving to death. There's no passion. There's no excitement. There's no hunger. I mean, they sing the same we sing these songs, rejoice, rejoice and we're singing them, Rejoice we were looking around. It's just there's no inside stuff. They don't they don't have that. I mean they it's like they've lost their appetite for him. They don't hunger anymore, they don't they aren't driven anymore. If I ever get like that, you have permission to chase me down and pull me aside and say, Brother, you've got a problem in your life. Jeremiah watched you, and you're dead in a door now. It was neat when I first got saved. People came up to me and said, Oh, I like Jeremiah. He's just so excited. He'll grow out of it. (laughs) I hope not, man. I hope not. Because there's this underlying in my life, this hunger in my life that... It drives me to put my hands to what he would put his hands to. It, it drives me to, to work for what he would work for. It's, just, it's in him. It's, it's after him. It's running in him. It's the spiritual intention. How's your appetite tonight? you still have that? That just, oh, on the seat of your pants, can't hardly stand still type of Jesus Forgive me in my life for hungering for food that does not endure. Giving myself to the things of this world in the way that I should be giving myself to You. In the name of Jesus, Father, save me from, save me from preaching for money. Save me from that. Wouldn't it be terrible to work for money? I don't want to be there. I go work overtime. I give my life to that kind of stuff. Why? Well, paying the bills. Jesus, I don't want to live there. I don't want to work for food that spoils. I don't want to put that on a higher priority than you, Jesus. So let me work for my position my title. Jesus, don't let me work for a hobby. I mean, it's not bad to have hobbies. It's not bad to go camping. It's not bad to... I mean, we have to earn money. We have to go out. We have to have a job. Jesus, let me, just, let, let me have one thing in my life that I can describe as working for. I'm working for you. Anything I put my hands to, you're behind it. You're what I'm striving for. You're what I'm hungering for. Yes, I have a job and yes, I go down and yes, they pay me but I'm a missionary there. Yes, I have to go to high school. Yes, I have to study. But I'm putting my hands to... I'm putting my hands to you, Jesus. I'm striving for... Use me in the midst of my high school. Thank you for the opportunity of being with you this evening. I pray that you'd stretch us. I pray that you'd do whatever you need to do to kindle that back in our life and perhaps some crazy chance that's never been there, Jesus. Would you, would you strike inside of us a fire that will not go out? Would you ignite our passion for you? Would you, would you turn on the little, the little switch inside that makes me hungry? Let me burn for you. We give you all the praise. And Father, we ask these things in the name of your Son, Christ Jesus. Amen.